0: grab your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 8. It's the phrase you hear every Sunday morning as I step up here. It's the, you hear that phrase because we believe the Bible, we teach the Bible, and we seek to live what the scripture teaches us. So Luke 11 is where we're going to be this morning. As you're finding your place there, or a couple uh, over the last couple of weeks, I have observed a few different car crashes at the corner of Jude's Ferry and 60. You probably do the same thing. If you live here in Powhatan, you know that's a fairly dangerous intersection. It's not uncommon to see a car accident there. And so on both of those occasions, or all of those occasions when I was headed uh, over to the high school, I was doing that to, uh, to pick up my oldest daughter from lacrosse practice. And so me and all the other parents are trying to get into the turning lane there to uh, turn off 60 into Jude's Ferry to get to the high school. And so everything's backed up because of these accidents. and. And each of those occasions, I'm sitting there in traffic, and I'm thinking, man, I wonder if it'd be faster to hit one of these other options. Maybe go on down, turn back, and come around, or maybe I need to turn around, and go all the way uh, over to Red Lane, and back around. And so I'm trying to think through the scenario of what's going to get me to the high school the quickest, because I got to get there, I got to pick her up, and then I got to get home. And whatever else we got going on the rest of the evening. So thinking through that like you probably did if you're sitting at the intersection when there's a car accident. The good thing is, is if you're in that situation, there are options to get to the high school or to get down Jude's Ferry Road. You know, when you think about the Christian faith, many people, their objections to the gospel is that of its narrowness. The fact that there are only one option. It's Jesus plus nothing, Right. It's Jesus only. And so when they think about the gospel, and maybe you're sharing it with them, that is their objections. But the reason we present to them the fact that Jesus is the only option when it comes to salvation is because Jesus presented it that way. John fourteen six, Jesus says this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, there's an exclusiveness to the gospel, and that exclusivity comes through and to Jesus Christ. Here in the statement that I've just mentioned, that Jesus is plainly spelling out the narrowness of the gospel message. The fact that it is exclusively found in and through him. There are no other paths. There are no other options. And so people hear that, and their objection is, you're telling me, that the billions of people across the globe who do not believe the way you believe, that they're headed to a devil's hell, that, that, that they have no other option, the fact that they've never believed on Jesus, nevertheless, maybe not even heard the name of Jesus. And so you're telling me that they are headed to hell because Jesus, whom they've never heard of, is the only option. Yes, that's what the Bible teaches. That flies into the face of what we hear in culture today because many people believe that all roads lead to God. So regardless of the spiritual path a person may travel, he or she will inevitably meet God and arrive at God because all paths come to the same destination. And This understanding what matters is not so much the path you're on, it's the sincerity one has regarding the path that they're on. So it comes down to whether or not you're sincere in your belief, whether or not you're sincerely buying into the teaching of Buddhism or buying into the teaching of Hinduism or whatever the ideology and religious doctrine may be. It's about sincerity. So they ask, what is it that we are to believe? Is Jesus' claim of exclusivity correct? I want you to think about that this morning. <clears throat> what if it's going to be one of those days? <laughs> just talk for an hour and 20 minutes, had no issue. <clears throat> Saying for 30 minutes, had no issue. And now listen to me. I sound like a, a <clears throat> I don't know what I sound like, terrible. Tim, if you could help me out, that would help me very greatly. You know what it is? I'm not in my sling, and my wife's not here this morning, and she's watching, and she's praying God's curse upon me. That's what it is. I think my voice is coming back, But I'm thinking, I don't want to be just bound by that encumbering piece of work over there, so I'm going to try it. And here I can't even speak. You're a good brother. All that is to keep me humble. And maybe it's just a curse as well. So, so people wrestle with this exclusive claim when it comes to the gospel. What I want you to wrestle with this morning is, what if it's correct? What if what Jesus says when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, what if that is correct? If it is correct, we need to do something with it, right? Are there other exclusive Options, In other words, are there other realms where there's only one option? Absolutely. Sometimes you can't get through a sermon without drinking some water. There's only one option there. My family and I live in the Mill Quarter area. If you're from Powhatan, you know where that's at, more than likely. If you're going to go to my house, if you're going to go to Steve from Jan's house, or if you're going to go to the golf course back there, you've got one option. You come down 13, you turn on Mill Quarter Road, and that is the only way in and the only way out. The Mill Quarter area. You say, well, I don't like that. I don't want to come down Mill Quarter Road, and so I'm going to find another way in. Well, you may sincerely believe that you can find another way in, but you're not going to do it going down a regular road and not trespassing upon someone else's property. There's one way in and one way out. Doesn't matter what you sincerely believe. Doesn't matter what you sincerely try to bring to fruition. Because in Mill Quarter, there is one road in and there one, is one road out. There are no other options. As we move into this next passage in Luke chapter 11, the gospel writer here is presenting to us a simple and yet profound call to choose a side. Uh, To choose a side, that there is no middle ground. And so what we're going to discover this morning is that neutrality. If we want to just kind of go down the middle and be neutral, whether or not we're going to go to either side is debated, but we're just going to be neutral. That is self-deceiving and it is a dangerous place to be. So if you look with me, Luke chapter 11, let's begin reading in verse 14 goodness gracious. Luke says this. Now Jesus, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Some of them said, he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against itself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, <clears throat> then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace... Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. There's a lot of things that we could look at this morning in this passage. Obviously, it's dealing with demon possession, and we're going to talk about that, but the thrust of this text deals with the idea of choosing a sign. Look there in verse 14. We see that it opens with Jesus casting out... A demon. Now, in, in many ways, as we read this, we see that this is a very similar setting to all the other uh, exorcisms that have taken place this up to this point in this gospel. In fact, this has been a major theme in the first 10 plus chapters of Luke's gospel. We've seen Jesus cast demons out multiple times over these chapters. The difference here, perhaps, perhaps the main difference is the fact that this man who's possessed by a demon... Is mute. In other situations, the man is screaming and acting crazy and cutting themselves and falling into fires and doing all kinds of strange things. This demon, who is oppressing and possessing his host, forces him into muteness. Muteness. It's very likely that this man had been unable to speak for several years. And you think about that, just like it would be for today, the inability to speak, the inability to communicate would have been horrible for this man's life and his situation because being able to speak is a part of normal, everyday life. Not having that, in fact, if this man was not even able to write or to read, this would have greatly compacted the the, the situation in his life. He would have been he would have been left to, to simply convey his, his desires and his wishes, wishes through frustrating combination of facial expressions, body ex- expressions, gestures, and sounds. To think about this, that really only he could understand. So he feels like a man who is trapped within his own body. This feeling would have been true reality because his tongue has been chained by an evil spirit. It's one thing to have your tongue not able to function properly. It's another thing for an evil spirit to, to, uh, to relish in his pleasure of binding this man to mutinous, to destroy his livelihood and the way he lives life. We read these verses this morning. We are again reminded that demons are real. Uh, We see here that demons not, not only are just real, but they sometimes afflict people. Here, this demon is possessing this man. But we also see that Jesus rules over the demonic, that Jesus has authority over these principalities and these spirits that are in this world. Luke's power purpose, however, in sharing this story and this discussion that follows is to display the imperativeness of choosing a side. And so this morning, we're not going to go in depth when it comes to the demonic world that's out there. But I do want you to know that it's real. And I do want you to know the place for keeps. And I do want you to know that we don't want to, to, to engage it in a way that is flippant because you will lose. But also, you need to understand Jesus is far superior to the demons of this world. Luke's purpose here in bringing this to light is to bring to us the idea that we need to choose a side, that there is evil and there is an evil one, but there is also a savior and we need to make a choice as to who we will follow. So I'm going to look at this passage, break it down in three parts, and then I want to give you three takeaways. And I understand we can't be here long because why? Lunch awaits. Amen. Lunch awaits. Lord knows I need some more food in my body. Here's the first thing I want you to see this morning. Luke lays out for us some questions about Jesus' identity, beginning here in uh, verse 14 and following. When you think about these exorcisms that are taking place, uh, these exorcisms, like all the others that Jesus had performed, uh, the crowds marveled. The crowd is in astonishment. That's what... Uh, Luke tells us here, as this man is freed from his possession, he begins to speak and the crowd marvels over it. They're in awe. They're in wonder of the fact that this man has now been able to speak, which tells us that it's been some time and this possession has been very significant. It's highly probable that this man, because now he's able to speak, what do you think he's doing? He's praising God. Lord Jesus, thank you for freeing me. I've been bound by that. I've been unable to speak. Thank you for doing this. I'm so grateful. So he's expressing his gratitude. He's worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ after this scene, after this miracle is taking place. And then as all of that's taking place, as he is glorifying and worshiping the Lord Jesus and offering his gratitude to the Lord, there is a group of people, perhaps two groups of people, who are observing this, and they're a little taken back. They're not so sure. In fact, they are discrediting what has taken place in this man. Because everyone knew it was a miracle, and yet these critics are going to find a way to explain it away. There's two lines of thought that come here from what Luke shares with us. One group we see responded with slander. You see, in verse 15, we see that they accused Jesus of casting out this demon by a demon. He says here in verse 15 that they cast, he, Jesus casted this demon out by Beelzebub, who is the prince of demons. You probably don't uh, do a lot of work in the area of demonology, and so you're probably wondering, uh, who is this Beelzebul guy? Well, in the days of Jesus, when uh, this ministry is taking place the term or the name beelzebul was an alternative name for satan himself in the hebrew culture if you said beelzebul they understood hebrew to hebrew that you were referring to satan or satan himself we go back and we study other uh, texts like the ugaritic text and, and the name beelzebul meant Baal or Baal the prince. We we move into the Old Testament, Second Kings chapter one, for instance, and that that term Bzebul is changed, a deliberate distortion into Baal Zebub, which means the Lord of flies, and it's done so to deprecate this pagan god. It's to to put some emphasis there to, to show that Baal or Baal. Baal Is no God at all. In fact, he's nothing more than the Lord of Flies. That the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, takes it a step further and calls him the God of Flies, Baal of Flies. He's the fly god. So as we think about this term Beelzebub, that they're accusing Jesus of uh, of. Uh, Being in cahoots with, this is not a term that is flattering to the Lord Jesus. It is fitting for Satan. It is fitting for the evil one. It is fitting for the slanderer and, and the one who's working against us. It is fitting for the one that hell was created for. It is not a fitting term for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as they say this, they are saying it to slander Jesus, even as he has performed a mighty miracle. This first group of critics are slandering by equating Jesus with Satan. But the second group is doing something a little different. They're not slandering. Their rejection is not so inflammatory. It's moderated with what we would call skepticism. Luke goes on to say, he says that some of them, verse 15, or verse 16, others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So this group of people discredited the miracle that was right there before their eyes. They wanted, as Luke tells us, a cosmic miracle. They wanted the sun to be turned back like we see in the Old Testament. They wanted manna to fall from heaven. They wanted some sort of cataclysmic type of event. And then they would say, oh, we believe you are the Son of God. We believe, Jesus, that you're not just an ordinary person. So there's skepticism there. Skeptics gave the impression of being on the fence, and yet their belief and acceptance of, or disbelief and unacceptance of Jesus, is nothing more than a rejection of Him. Think about it just as in those days, today people question the identity of Jesus, don't they? You begin to share your faith with somebody, they're going to question who Jesus is. Here's what happens they see the miracle of redemption take place in a person's life and they're quick to discredit I, I, don't, I don't know about that. They see a person who was hopeless, now through the gospel, through their relationship with Jesus Christ, now has hope. They see a person who was loveless, now expressing hope. They see a person who was once, before Jesus, self-centered and just a narcissist, and now because God, through Jesus Christ, has changed their life, they discredit that and they say, I, I'm not sure about that. They're always working to discredit. They're always working to slander. They're always working to question whether or not what they see is legit and real. You see, in their perplexity and in their unwillingness to believe the Bible's teachings of Jesus, this is how they respond. Sometimes people will say, yeah, I would agree he's a teacher. I agree that Jesus was a great religious leader. I agree that Jesus might even have been a miracle worker, but he ain't the son of God. So there's slander there. Because when you call Jesus just a teacher, or you call Jesus just a miracle worker, you say, well, those are good terms. But when it comes to who Jesus really is, that's nothing more than slander. Jesus is so much more than a teacher. Jesus is so much more than just a a miracle worker who brought healing to people's lives. See, Jesus' purpose in in bringing the demon out of this man, and Jesus' purpose in in healing the sick and the blind, and and those who had leprosy, bringing that healing there, his purpose was not just physical healing. It was always spiritual in nature. His goal is to redeem humanity. So we don't call Jesus a miracle worker only. We call him the Savior of the world, because that's his goal, and that's what he truly has done for us. Today, regardless of how a person rejects the identity of Jesus, we discern from these verses here that we need to choose a side, preferably the side that believes what Jesus says of himself. Leads us to a second thing. We see questions about his identity. Secondly, answers for Jesus' critics is presented. The people's rejection of Christ obviously is insulting. It's outrageous. Here, here's what's going on. They're looking at a situation. It's black, and they're calling it white. Or it's white, and they're calling it black. Whatever the situation was, they're saying, no, that, that can't be the reality. That, that man really wasn't demon-possessed. That man really wasn't that bad. It's all a facade. It's all a show. Humanly speaking experiencing this, hearing this rejection, hearing the slander, hearing the question and the skepticism, would you fault Jesus in the face of all of this if he would have just turned around and walked away? We would not fault him for that. Why? Because when you're dealing with fools, it's hard to make a good argument. Jesus could have easily walked away and just not even spoke to them. Many times he does that in scripture. He doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond. He just moves on. But what does Jesus do here? He steps toward them. Why would he do that? I believe it's because the heart of Jesus is on full display. He understands the spiritual nature of what's going on here. He understands that they're literally on the edge of the abyss, about to step over into their own spiritual death. And so here in this moment, he's going to speak life to them, and he's going to offer them a picture of the gospel. And so he gives these answers to rebuttal their questions. He does it in two ways. The first rebuttal is that of a divided kingdom. The fact that if it is divided, it cannot stand. That's what he says in verses 17 through 19. In essence, Jesus is making the case that no group will last long if it's fighting itself. You think about the condition we see in America today. I wonder how much longer can we exist as a nation who's so deeply entrenched on various sides. How can we? No. What happens in nations when we are divided is that we begin to implode upon ourselves. We begin to rot from the inside out because of our division. So that's what Jesus is saying here. He's telling us that division is the great implosioner. Consequently, the idea that Jesus casts out Satan by satanic power doesn't even make logical sense. Think about it. Why would Beelzebul fight against Beelzebul? If he's doing that, he's weakening and destroying his own kingdom. Jesus makes this point even more emphatic there in verse 19 when he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Obviously, what is at play here is that we have some Jewish exorcists who have been casting out demons from those who are possessed and it's a fact, it's a known reality, it's something that has been happening. And so Jesus is saying, if I've cast out demons by Satan himself, his own power, then what's been happening in your own Jewish brethren who've been doing the same thing? The point here is that, no, Satan can't and will not reject himself or seek to divide his own kingdom. Therefore, something else must be at work. Something else must be going on here, which brings us to a second rebuttal. Verses 21 or 20 through 22, Jesus is there pushing back, declaring that the kingdom of God has arrived. He says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The phrase, the kingdom of God, is interesting. Where do we see it? We see it in Exodus chapter 8 when Moses is performing these plagues upon Egypt. And, and many, many times early on, the uh, Egyptian magicians were able to manipulate, or I shouldn't say manipulate, were able to mimic the the, the, the curse or the thing that Moses was doing, right? Uh, Moses throws down a, a rod, it becomes a snake, but uh, their uh, magicians throw down their staffs and they become snakes. But if you've watched the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, you know, Moses the snake eats those snakes. See, it's it's biblical fact, right? And then it happened. But then it gets on into the later plagues, and those magicians weren't able to mimic the same things. And so, uh, what's taking place here is that the magicians in Egypt say to Pharaoh, "This is the finger of God. God is at work here," which means God of Israel is greater than the gods of Egypt. We also see it when Moses goes up onto the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments and he comes down with these stone tablets. How did he receive these stone tablets? God wrote them with his finger. And so every time we see this phrase, it's a picture of God's activity, God's revelation coming out and advancing in a new way. So Jesus here closes his case for the arrival of the kingdom of God by describing himself as the stronger man who attacks and overwhelms the strong man. The picture here that he presents is it's not so much of a palace as it is a well-armed castle. You think about a castle with a courtyard. You think about the, the, the king or the lord that's over that castle. And, and all of the guards and all of the armor and all of the things he has. He sets inside that castle and he feels secure because he has The power and authority to secure his stuff. What does Jesus say? He says, well, he's strong and he's protected until someone stronger comes in. And then that one who is stronger comes in with greater military power, greater expertise, greater ability, and he devastates the strong man who's in his strong tower. And so what is the picture alluding to? What is this parable, this parabolic picture alluding to? Well, we have Satan who is the strong man, and he's in his castle, which is this mute man who's demon-possessed, and who's the stronger man? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He comes and he defeats this Demon. He defeats the kingdom of hell, and he releases the man from his bondage. That's what's going on here. So Jesus' point in all of this is to say this. The kingdom has arrived. And so you wonder, is what is happening here of God? Absolutely, because there's a miracle taking place. But here's something even more. It's not just that a miracle is taking place. Jesus is displaying and demonstrating that he is the king and he's bringing a kingdom with him therefore you better choose a side just as in those days today jesus is answering his critics stories of the gospel as well as the greater narrative of the bible what do they do for us they explain that jesus is in fact god the son He's not another expression of fallen supernatural power. He's not, a, he, uh, he's, he's not a, another angel. Here's what we know about Jesus based upon the testimony of scripture. He's not Lucifer's brother. He's not Satan's brother. They're not equals. No, Jesus is far superior. He is God the Son. and He comes with a kingdom. He's not working along with Satan to confuse humanity. He's not a Someone who's going to further seal humans' condemnation. No, Jesus is the very personification of the kingdom of God. His work of redemption in the lives of sinful people declare that God's kingdom is here. Which brings us to a third part that I want us to see this morning. He offers some warnings about reformation without regeneration. So while many people that day would have sought to slander Jesus saying, no, 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 he's not who he says he is, others would have been skeptical because they're not so brash. Let's just be nice to them this morning. They probably would have been a little pushy against those who were slanderous. Let's not take it that far. Let's not go in that direction. Well, let's leave room for the fact that Jesus may be who he says he is, but they weren't really willing to step out and, and fully believe or fully believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they also probably didn't care for the attitude that these people brought. And yet they were not fully compared to align their lives with Jesus and just wanted to toe the middle and remain neutral. Yet Jesus makes it clear here that there can be no middle ground. Look at verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Don't you see here the dichotomy? Jesus is saying you can't ride the fence. You can't stay in the middle. You either have to be against the Lord Jesus or you have to be with Jesus. If you're with Jesus, you're gathering with him. If you're against Jesus, you're scattering against him. So there is only two sides of the coin. You can't stand on the rim. Skeptics, however, were well-intentioned. They did want good to overcome evil. They would have wanted every demon-possessed person to be freed from spiritual bondage. I mean, think about it. This would be the ministry of those Jewish exorcists. Jesus says, if I'm doing this by the power of Beelzebul, by what power are your sons doing this? By what power are the Jewish men who are uh, exercising or, or casting out demons, by what power are they doing that? So these people would have wanted good things to happen to these people in these bad situations. So we come to these uh, verses in verses 24 through 26, this very parable-like phrase here, this parable-like passage here. And we see a warning against reformation being reformed, being changed, uh, finding a new walk of life separate from the life that Jesus Christ brings in to a person. His point is that anyone who purges evil from his or her life but fails to replace it with the life of God and his truth is in serious moral danger. I didn't do the research this week, but if you went and just did a Google search, I, I, I don't know how you would do it or how accurate it would be, but it would be interesting if you did a search and just said, Tell me the number of self help books that are out there and available, what that number would be. I mean, we all have books. I'm not speaking against them. We all have books uh, in our, on our shelves that tell us how to do certain things. I mean, you, sometimes you buy a book to uh, teach you how to grill better. Sometimes you buy a book so you can uh, do some building projects. Sometimes you buy a book to learn about how to do leadership or learn how to bake a cake or, or whatever, how to be a good father or mother, be a good parent. So self-help books are not bad But if all you have is self-help books, but you have that devoid of the spirit and the life of Jesus Christ in you, you have nothing. Can you make your life better? Yes. That's what Jesus is saying here, is that sometimes you can actually reform yourself to a point that your life improves, but it never takes you to where you need to be. And that is to have the life of God in you. Look what he says here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. So in this context. Here's a person who's been possessed by a demon, and it's been exercised. It's been cast out. That demon passes through waterless places. It's seeking rest. It's finding none. And so it says, I will return to my house from which I came. So it's been cast out, but the possession and authority still rests there, no longer dwelling there, but there's no forwarding address. So it's going to go back to its house, and it comes back. It finds things looking good, finds things swept and tidy. It's neat. All the destruction that was once there is no longer there. The person has read some stuff. The person has got some help, and he's put his, his or her life back together. But because they never replaced it with God and truth, the demon comes back, brings some buddies with him, and absolutely destroys the person's life. And so Jesus is warning him against this. He's warning us that if we simply seek to be reformed in our life and not regenerated by the life of Jesus Christ, the outcome of that is far worse than it's ever been before. So here's the truth. If a man or woman is empty and without God, think about this. Any sin and any perversion is possible. We need Jesus Christ in our lives. Just as in those days, today, we must not seek for our lives to simply be reformed from a lesser condition to a better one. But instead, we must seek for our lives to be regenerated and born again through Jesus Christ. We must desire for our sins and the evil within our hearts to be forgiven and eradicated through the blood of Jesus Christ. Here's what I want some of you to hear this morning. Coming To church week in and week out is good, and you need to be here. But if that's all you ever experience, you're the personification of verses 24, 25, and 26. You'll learn things here. You may even begin to practice some of the disciplines we call ourselves to do, like praying and reading your Bible and obviously attending worship and being in a small group and and changing your friends, right? The Bible says bad company corrupts good morals. And so you may begin to make some of those modifications in your life, but if you never allow the Spirit of God to take it to the full length of where God wants it and where you need it to be, that is that you come to a realization that I'm sinful and I've sinned against a holy God and I'm under his just condemnation and wrath, and therefore I must repent, turn from that sin, trust in Jesus' forgiveness that was bought for me, purchased for me on the cross, and be forgiven, and be changed through Jesus Christ. Be filled with the Spirit and walk in that. If you never get to that place, all you've done is change the dressing on the outside of your life, and inside you're as wicked and as dead and as empty as any time in your life. And so some of you, that's your condition this morning. Some of you, we, you know, some of us, we might have some thoughts. I, I'm not really sure about so-and-so. I'm not really sure what their walk with the Lord looks like. And so some of us have some assumptions there. Not judgment, just some assumptions. We're praying for some of you. Others, that, that may be your spiritual condition, and we have no idea because you play it very, very I just want that to rest on you this morning because this is significant, what Jesus is laying before us. It's a life or death situation. So we need to seek to be born again, seek to have the life of Jesus being pressed out through ours. We need a desire for God's spirit to take up residence for his kingdom to be enthroned in our lives. And so for this reason, let us desire relationship with Christ over religious experience. Man, wasn't the music great this morning? Well, wasn't it just invigorating and encouraging? And, and we can say, hallelujah, I, I, I concur, I, I amen the theology of those songs. I mean, we can do that this morning and, and have a moment, have an experience devoid of any relationship. May that never be true of your life individually and our lives Collectively. This passage here, we see that the crowd question the identity of Jesus. We see him answering those critics. We see warnings against reformation without regeneration. So let me give you just three simple takeaways this morning. Here's the first one. Jesus believed in a real Satan with a strong and united kingdom. There's no question about where Jesus stood when it comes to the theology of the demonic. You see, there's real evil in this world, and it is led by a powerful fallen creature who is referred to as Satan in the Bible. That is a reality. It's not some sort of myth. It's not some sort of legend. It's not some sort of uh, drummed up um, scare speech that church has created to get people to do certain things. No, it is a fact. It's a fact. So we need to understand that. We need to take that with us today. Here's the second takeaway. Jesus proved himself to be morally and spiritually superior to Satan and his kingdom. You see, while Satan and his kingdom is powerful and it is influential, and we need to remember that, Jesus is greater in every way. For instance, as I said earlier, Jesus is not an equal with Satan. They don't start out at the same space. Jesus is infinitely superior to the evil one. And yet when he came to this earth, he defeated him at every single battle defeats him when he's tempted in the wilderness. He defeats him as he releases people from bondage, as he heals people, as he shares the gospel and preaches the gospel. And he's continuing to do that. I mean, this morning as we observe baptism, what do you think that's a picture of? It's a picture of the superiority of Jesus Christ to change a sinful fallen human being, to bring life. Whereas Paul says in Ephesians chapter two, they were once dead in sins and trespasses. That is the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. A third takeaway is this Jesus did not permit any middle ground for faith. Remember, he said, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Neutrality is a self deceiving and dangerous ruse. And every person today must make a decision about Jesus Christ. Here's what you're thinking this morning. I agree with you, Pastor. I need to make a decision about whether I'm going to follow Jesus or not follow him. But today, I don't want to make that decision. I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. How many times have you said that in your life? Have you ever reached tomorrow? Has tomorrow ever become a reality in your life? Here's what happens. The more you decide not to follow Jesus Christ... The more you decide to not follow Jesus Christ. It works against you. The less you are sensitive to the Spirit of God speaking into your life, the more closed off your spiritual ears become. The more calloused your heart becomes. I've got calluses on my hands from lifting weights, and I haven't lifted a weight in like 11 or 12 days and I'm just waiting for the calluses to go away and I get little girl hands that are all like you know you can't even say that anymore how I'm so sorry it was very gender um, um, unkind and I'm so sorry uh, not at all sorry um, because my little girls have soft tender hands that's what little girls do and so I'm just expecting that and so what happens when you have calluses they're not sensitive you can pick the skin and stick needles through. that's what happens to us When we say no to the Spirit's movement in our heart, we become calloused and closed off, no longer sensitive to the Lord's activity that he wants to do in us and then through us. This week, if you're driving down Highway 60 and you're trying to go somewhere down Jude's Ferry, maybe the high school or some other place, some of you live down there, you come to that intersection and it's blocked off because there's an accident, which happens quite often, you understand that there's some options for you to get perhaps to where you're going to go. You may have to go down 60 a little bit further. You may have to back up and hit another side road and do a big loop around. It'll be kind of long cut to get to where you want to go, but there are some options. But if you're coming down to my house or if you're going to play golf at the Mill Quarter Plantation this week and, and you come to the corner of Mill Quarter Road and, and Highway 13 or Route 13 as it's headed toward the, the, the courthouse area and there's an accident there, there's no other options. You're going to have to wait. A few years ago, we had uh, some storms, or I don't know if it was ice or what, but a tree fell over Mill Quarter Road. I think, Zach, you might have went down there and was a part of that um, in a bad way. Um, But uh, you could get out. I mean, not only was the electricity off, but I couldn't get out to get anything. So if I needed fuel for the generator, I was done until somebody cleared the way. And so if you come to the corner of Mill Quarter and you find it blocked, what are you going to do? You've got to wait for some way to block or to move the blockage from the intersection. Here's what it means for you spiritually. Every one of us, because we are born sinners, have a nature that is in rebellion against God. There is a blockage on the road that prevents us to getting to God. Right? There's nothing we can do, even if we try to attempt, even if we try to move the blockage, we actually don't ever move any of it. Our attempts, our vain, selfish, uh, sinful attempts probably adds more to the debris that's there. There's nothing we can do to help our situation, but here's what happens. Jesus Christ, God the Son, comes to that wreckage, the wreckage of you and I and our sinful pride and rebellion against him. And he lays down his life and becomes a bridge by which we can pass over the blockage and get to the life that is found in God our creator. That's what Jesus does for us. Many in this room listening to us online, you've experienced Jesus' bridge through the cross, and now you have life in him. And some of you today, you've pulled up to the wreckage there, and there's no passage. There's no other option. You can't go around, over, or under. There's no possible way to get around the wreckage except through Jesus Christ. And Today, the greatest need in your life is to say yes to him be forgiven of your sins, and have new life in him. I want to read Colossians chapter 2. Paul very succinctly lays out everything that I've just said in three verses. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the stronger man. I'm the one who comes to the strong man. I'm the one who defeats him and liberates everyone who's under the strong man. Jesus is the stronger man. This morning, have you come to faith and trust in him? Have you turned from your sins? Have you experienced new life? If not, today is the day for that. So would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for the truths that it reveals to us. Father, we thank you for the picture it gives us of salvation, the picture of victory in salvation. Lord, we thank you that it lays out for us two options. Choose to reject Jesus or, check, or choose to receive Jesus. There's no middle ground. There's no third candidate. No ride in. Will we continue to rebel and walk in sin? Or will we find forgiveness and new life? That which Jesus offers. In this room, there are people who need to make that decision this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit, as I was praying, as we were singing earlier, would open eyes and open ears. Speak the name of Jesus over them. Call them to faith. Father, I pray for those of us who are believers that this morning as we hear this and are reminded of this reality, God, that would urge us to be that more urgent in how we live and share the gospel. Because there's a day coming when the opportunities to respond will be no more. So may we feel that this morning. May we embrace that this morning. God, may we just simply say yes. This time's yours. This response time is yours. May be honored and glorified in it. Father, may your people be found faithful and obedient and willing. And Lord, may those who you're calling to be your people be faithful and obedient this morning to simply say yes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer, and we offer it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand here? We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.